Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Andrew Leyland. We are Andrew Leyland? What? What? <laughs> you don't sound British. <laughs> you don't sound like a northern chancer. <laughs> No, why did I say that? What? Why would I? Why would I be introducing myself as Andy Leyland? Why would that be relevant for a Batman podcast? Well, really, we all want to be Andy Leyland because <laughs> doesn't want to be Andy Leyland. I want to be Andy Leyland. Uh, but no, actually, the world's finest podcasting duo of Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland have launched their Overlook Dark Knight podcast, where they cover the somewhat unsung Batman comics from the era immediately preceding the one that we cover. They started out with a bang with one of my favorite Batman stories, The Untold Legend of the Batman, number one. And that is a podcast you guys need to listen to if you enjoy this show. I know you're going to enjoy that show. And we kind of owe it to Bailey because we kind of stole this from Crisis to Crisis idea with Superman for this show. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and we also, we stole Andy's idea for this show, even though we didn't know that at the time, because unbeknownst to him, while we were planning this one, he went to Michael and said, we should do a podcast about Batman around the era of Nightfall. And Michael Bailey, oh, was, like, right. Bailey was like, um, so somebody else is doing that, because I had talked to him previously about this like a year ago. And But yeah, the, their first episode is really, really good. It's I'm just excited as hell for that. I mean, you'd think we have enough Batman podcasts with our own, but um, no, that one's going to be a good one. I can tell that the Overlooked Dark Knight is going to be one of those podcasts where whenever they drop a new episode, I'm going to find out what they're covering, and I'm going to want to read that comic before I listen to it. And there aren't a whole lot of podcasts that I do that. I mean, there, there are a few. I mean, a lot of them cover stuff that I am familiar with, or I just get the general idea of what comic they're talking about from their description. But with the, with the material that they are planning to cover that they've just sort of announced or previewed, I'm definitely going to want to read along with those episodes. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, me too. I, I was very excited to hear that it had dropped, and and uh, yeah, we can't we can't say enough. Go listen to it. Yeah, you can find it at fortressofbailey2.com or of course on iTunes. So definitely check it out. It gets the Nightcast seal of approval, whatever that means. But <laughs> <laughs> and and J. David Weeder has released more episodes of the Dave Cave podcast. So there's we got a ton of Batman podcasts, but uh, clearly not nearly enough. We need some more. <laughs> right, exactly. And like we said, somebody needs to do the you know we've got uh, J. David Weeder doing the Silver Age Batman somebody needs to do the Bronze Age O'Neill Adams Batman up through where Michael and Andy are starting out so but although like Andy said he didn't want to start with the David B. Reed story so <laughs> uh, but yeah lots of lots of great Batman of course there's the Batman Universe podcast network mm-hmm. that's full of Batman podcasts so I mean yeah there's there's no shortage of great Batman podcasts out there but uh, please listen to this one first before you go looking for the other ones <laughs> Finish this episode first, then go find those guys. Right. Okay. And that's a nice segue to say this episode we will discuss Detective Comics number 573, the fifth issue from the regular creative team of Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis, and Paul Neary. This issue features the return of the Mad Hatter and the return of a particularly forgotten version of the Mad Hatter. In fact, this is really the last appearance of this iteration of the Mad Hatter. Are you confused yet, Ryan? Yeah. When it comes to the Mad Hatter, I am frequently confused. (laughs) 
Well, I guess it kind of goes with the name, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, I have done a little bit of uh, research, and uh, so uh, we will go over briefly the the convoluted, even this was convoluted before crisis, guys, <laughs> history of the Mad Hatter. Uh, Batman first ran afoul of a criminal named the Mad Hatter way back in Batman number 49, a cover dated October, November 1948. He didn't even make the cover since the Joker took that spot, but the Joker was like on every other cover back then, so not surprising. The story was called The Scoop of the Century, and it was written by Bill Finger, of course, with art by Lou Sayer Schwartz and Charles Paris. This Mad Hatter was visually based on the Lewis Carroll, John Tenniel creation from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, or as we know it, Alice in Wonderland. He plays second fiddle to another character who debuted in that story, your favorite, Ryan. Vicky Vale. <laughs> we know what's going there, right? <laughs> I guess we do now. <laughs> the whip, Shazam! No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> the the Mad Hatter aspect is the B plot to Vicky trying to prove Bruce is Batman. Of course it is. You know, uh, Mad Hatter was drawn as a small man with a huge oversized hat. He hid weapons and other useful items in his hats, like gas guns and secret chemicals that, when lit, created a smoke screen. He also sent hats as clues to his crimes. Now, in many of the Who's Who entries, you will see this Mad Hatter called Jervis Tetch as his real name. Reading over this story, I never saw him referred to that. So keep that in mind. This Mad Hatter has been retroactively called Jervis Tetch, but that name actually belongs to the second Mad Hatter, the one featured in our comic in this episode. He debuted in Detective Comics number 230, April 1956. The story titled The Mad Hatter of Gotham City was once again written by Bill Finger with art by Sheldon Moldoff and Charles Paris. This Hatter does rate the cover drawn by Wynn Mortimer, who recently came up in the Who's Who in the Legion episode. This Mad Hatter is identified as Jervis Tetch, as I said, for the first time, and has swept back red hair and a handlebar mustache. He is after Batman's cow to add to his vast collection of hats. He actually does manage to steal the cow, but Batman and Robin get it back and apprehend him. It took another eight years, but that Hatter returned in Batman number 161, February 1964. This time, David Wood penned the tale, The New Crimes of the Mad Hatter, with art again by Moldoff and Paris. This time, Tetch uses specialized hats to disguise himself and commit crimes, seeking revenge on the jurors who sent him up the river. Two years later, these last two Hatter stories were adapted into the two-part Batman television series episodes, The 13th Hat and Batman Stands Pat, written by Charles Hoffman. Actor David Wayne is almost unrecognizable as the red-haired, mustachioed Tetch, who looks like he stepped right out of the comics. The TV show adds the super-instant mesmerizer to Tetch's hat arsenal, which may have influenced the character's later obsession with mind control. David Wayne returned for another two-parter, The Contaminated Cow, The Mad Hatter Runs Afoul, which borrowed more elements from the same two comic stories and was also written by Charles Hoffman. The mustachioed Hatter continued in the comics off and on for the next decade or so, appearing in Batman number 201, 291 through 294, and 297. Now here's where it gets tricky. In Detective Comics number 510, January 1982, writer Jerry Conway and artist Gene Colan and Klaus Janssen brought back the original, tenniel-like Mad Hatter for the first time in over 35 years. This Hatter says he's the real Jervis Tetch and claims to have disposed of the imposter. Again, the original Mad Hatter story from 1948 never names the character Jervis Tetch, so that just adds to the confusion. This Mad Hatter will continue on in many stories following this, and say for our issue, he is the Mad Hatter. He was a version adapted from Batman the Animated Series, along with a new sympathetic backstory that tied him even closer to his Alice roots. 
Detective Comics number 573 was the last appearance of our Mad Hatter for decades. He returned in recent years in a fashion in Batman number 700, looking the same but now called Hatman. He has also turned up in the Batman 66 comics and merchandise, looking like David Wayne's portrayal. So what do you think of all this, Ryan? <laughs> I barely followed any of that. <laughs> it is weird, and I've actually – I have read – precious few Batman comics with the Mad Hatter. I actually, I was looking at his at his history and I just, I've always known of the character and I, it, it stems back from the, the series, the David Wayne portrayal, but I think I just knew that he must have been kind of popular because he was based on the Mad Hatter character from Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and then just kind of like going through like looking up his, his publication history, I was like, I haven't read that issue. I haven't read that issue. I haven't, there's only a few that I have. Um, it was still really confusing and like you're right, as you mentioned. Like by the time that Barr and Davis do this story with this version of Mad Hatter, like this character had, according to the other one, had been killed off or had been disposed of. So he comes back. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, did Barr and Davis not know of that story that Conway and Gene Colan did, or were they not paying attention to it, or did they think that because this is post-crisis? They got to reinvent the Mad Hatter that they wanted, and they preferred this one because this one certainly seems to be more in keeping with the Batman '66 television series, uh, and so much of their comics feel like serious versions of that show. So I, I have no idea. Like, was this just a blunder? They didn't realize what the status quo of Mad Hatter was, or were they being selective and deliberately picking this one because this was the one they wanted to do, and they thought because of post-crisis they could get away with it? I got no idea. Yeah, I I don't either. That's that's a good question. And, you know, the who's who entries, even after this, the loose leaf who's who, um, it still mentions that the other Hatter disposed of this one. It doesn't even mention the story which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, it basically just copies the text from the original Who's Who entry, which was printed before this comic. So, yeah, it, it's really weird. I, I mean, I I met the Mad Hatter on the TV show like you, and I actually met him in the comics because um, there was a, a DC Digest, a DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number 15 from 1981 that reprinted the first appearance of this Mad Hatter. And even then reading it, I'm like, oh, this is just like the TV episode. I mean, it's a pretty faithful adaptation in in large parts. Mm -hmm. Actually, they adapt elements of it in both the uh, Mad Hatter two-parters. But uh, so, yeah, so when I I missed Detective Number 510, that's one of the rare issues from that run that I just didn't find on the newsstand. So he appears in Detective Number 526, which, of course, is the big villain jam issue, um, the the, the anniversary issue of uh, 500 Batman issues. So it's the, you know, the more Lewis Carroll Mad Hatter. And I'm like, what's the deal with this Mad Hatter? He doesn't look like the Mad Hatter. So I was very confused. And then when I got the who's who, I read it. And I'm like, wait, what? What the other Mad Hatter, you know, and then this issue comes out and then he's back. And so, you know, until Batman, the animated series, I most definitely preferred this Mad Hatter Mm. to the other. But the animated series kind of gave him a a sympathetic backstory, but he's still pretty creepy. You know, I mean, it's it's Roddy McDowell. So it's a great performance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's fantastic. So he's in a you know he's in a couple episodes where you don't even see it coming, and he's great in that. But it's just really strange that there's these two characters, and and you know even Mike's Amazing World, like you know he lists the the other Hatters, the Earth Two one, and this is the Earth One one. Well, that doesn't quite technically work out. Which you know not that you know Mike's got enough to keep up with. I'm not going right. to give him any grief for that. Uh, but. but uh, so yeah, it's it's beyond confusing, basically. <laughs> it is. It was definitely one of those that they need to sort of come up with a synthesis for him and kind of infuse like what are the best elements. And 
I do prefer the other version. I mean, uh, I I think the look of you know the David Wayne version of the Mad Hatter is kind of cool, just because the top hat <laughs> popping up with the laser ble- beams or the mind control thing that comes out of that. It's a really cool look, but his Mad Hatter never did a whole lot for me in the cartoon. Or sorry, in the show. I do prefer a Mad Hatter that is kind of oddball-looking and a little bit weird and a little bit creepy. I just think it's kind of fitting. Honestly, like if you ask me like my favorite version of Mad Hatter, it's not even in comics and it's not in the animated series. It's from one of the video games. It's the Arkham City version, the Batman Arkham City video game. And I know in the other games that came after that, Mad Hatter is, has a, like a bigger part to play, but there's one level where you play him where you get knocked out and you wake up and you're at this table. And it's all of Mad Hatter's goons like wearing like fake like bunny masks or like the March Hare masks. And like the the Hatter is kind of going through like this villain monologue where he like brainwashed you and then puts like this fake Batman mask that looks ridiculous, it looks silly, and he puts it on your head and you kind of have to fight your way out of this hallucination where it looks like you're on a broken timepiece and everything is kind of creepy and weird, like in some Alice in Wonderland distorted world. And by the time you beat that level, like once you kind of like fight your way out of his control, you take the mask off and you're back in the room at the, the long table and all of his goons are on the floor unconscious because you've been fighting them and you didn't realize what was going on. Nice. Yeah, and, and he's kind of like a creepy, faux British, crazy Mad Hatter type of guy, so... Not unlike Andy Leyland. No, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. <laughs> <laughs> we brought it full circle. <laughs> you know, they've they've went into some kind of they've gone into some kind of uh, places with the Mad Hatter. He's he's kind of pervy uh, yeah, nowadays. Yeah. I know they kind of set that up in the Robin Year One mm-hmm. uh, miniseries where he was like you know abducting young girls and and dressing them like Alice and you know it was kind of like mm, you well, know. <laughs> Gail Simone took that to like the nth degree in one of the Secret Six miniseries, I think, when she had Mad Hatter on the team, and there was like one cutaway where he he had a sort of euphoric release, almost like that you would get from like a drug or sex or something like that, by wearing these hats, and he could like crank up like the settings on them. And there's just one cutaway where everybody is kind of doing their own thing. And you see the Mad Hatter is in his room, basically just naked, sitting on a pile of hats with, like, this drugged-out smile on his face going, Mmm, that's good hat. Dude, <laughs> Gail, what, what are you thinking, man? This, <laughs> what are you doing with this character, man? <laughs> it's, it's far from the, uh, the, uh, the dry wit and urbane way of David Wayne's Mad Hatter, for sure. Very, very true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we'll talk more about this when we get through the story. I, I do, I like the character of Mad Hatter. I think he takes a particular type of story. I would always like to see him in a movie. I don't think he can be your main villain. He seems like the kind of guy you should get in like a James Bond style opening, like a two minute teaser to like the movie or something where you just see him doing something and Batman beats him up. Just as, uh, you know, paying homage to the character and his legacy, but. I don't know if he's that important that he needs a big story to himself. Yeah, I'm the same way. I think he, you know, he could he could be like the Scarecrow was in the Dark mm-hmm. Knight. You know, Batman rounds him up pretty quick. Uh, you know, I think that'd be a good way to do him. Uh, but the modern Mad Hatter going back in the the Carol direction and making him a, a complete loon works more for the modern take yeah. on where all of Batman's enemies are are just plain insane. You know, I yeah. mean, uh, as we'll get into this story of. Uh, 
well, we don't want to spoil that, but we'll talk about it when we get into the story. But uh, yeah, so lots of lots of different takes on the Mad Hatter. It's almost more of a concept than a character in a way. It's 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 like the idea that from Alice in Wonderland and an obsession with hats and a use of hats as a weapon, and then just plug in what you want to. Basically, <laughs> right. it's kind of open to lots of interpretation. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, with that, we want to take a quick promo break, and when we come back, we'll dive deep in Detective Comics number 573. Hold on to your hats. <laughs> in 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, the Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire & Water Podcast Network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team-ups. Marvel Team-Up. Yes. The Brave and the Bold? You know it. Marvel 2-in-1. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents... Of course. Supervillain Team-Up? Good idea. Youngblood X-Force? Mm, technically. FW Team Up, coming this summer, only from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Detective Comics number 573 was cover dated April 1987, and according to Mike's Amazing World, it was on sale January 29th, 1987. The cover by Alan Davis and Paul Neary depicts the Mad Hatter sitting on a floating mechanical device shaped like a top hat against an orange background. Via remote control, he sends several spinning straw hats with brims like buzz saws at Batman and Robin, who get their capes shredded in the process. The hats read, Wayne for Councilman. A text blurb announces, Madder than ever, the Mad Hatter. What do you think of this one, Ryan? The image that it's conveying, I really, really like. It's fun. It's action-packed. It reminds me of like a show or the cartoon where there seems to be some kind of death trap or like crazy threat danger with these spinning like campaigning hats, uh, like buzz saws, and they're getting rid of them. I really like it. The orange, the bright orange background, I think it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, it's just it's hard for me to see the image other just because I think like that that background just seems so striking. Maybe I just wish there was a different color background. That's really that's really my only complaint about it. I mean, it's not. I think it's a, it's a fun, it's a cool, action packed image. It's it reminds me of like what what the story we're gonna get, kind of a classic death trap story. Mm-hmm. I think Robin looks. He's got his, his, Robin's hair is a little bit unkempt for what we usually see. But other than that, true. yeah, it's it's. I like everything about it. I kind of wish the background color wasn't the orange that it is. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I don't have any problem. I know Stephen Lacey on the Fantastic Cast hates when they don't have any background mm. information at all. But that doesn't bother me because, especially on a cover like this, with all the swirling hats and the lines off the hats and. I think it would just kind of crowd it and, yeah. and make it hard to follow. Yeah. But I agree with you. Maybe the color's a little too bold. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's just too vibrant. Um, and it, you know, maybe par- partially too because you already got the Mad Hatter's hair and mustache that are a similar color. Right. So yeah, it doesn't it doesn't pop them apart like maybe it should. But yeah, I like I like the image. Robin's really skinny. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we, we we know that his Robin's tiny, but he looks like extra skinny on this one. Not that it's bad, but he just looks, you know, almost looks like Robin's going through his awkward phase where he's, you know, starting to get taller, but he's really skinny. Mm-hmm. Or something. <laughs> 
soft routine phase. But uh, yeah, but it's it's another winner from Davis and Neary. But of, of course it is. You know, it's not like they're going to give us a bad cover. <laughs> Actually, I finally like I was trying to figure out, like what is it about Robin that seems so weird to me? You can see his pupils. Mm-hmm. Like he's got yeah. he's got the mask on, but you can see like you can't see like iris. They're not like full eyes, but you can see these little pin pinprick black dots in his eyes, like the pupils, as he's looking around to see the danger that's coming to him. And I kind of understand the need for that because you know it, it's it's that's the way to convey his concern. But ah, that's that's weird. You don't see that. <laughs> Right, yeah, it's you know Davis did that. Jim Apparel occasionally will draw you know mm-hmm. the little pupils in you know Batman Robin's eyes and stuff. So yeah, it's it's like a cheat. I guess it's kind of like Spider Man's you know eyes squinting and things right. you know when they shouldn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is, it is. That's probably the thing that pops out about him. I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's not something we're used to seeing you know a whole yeah. lot. Yeah, I mean George Perez when he drew Robin, he just said, "No, I'm giving him eyes." You know, I'm <laughs> I'm going to show his eyes, and when he's Nightwing too, you know. But so that kind of established that. So when they pop in occasionally, sometimes it kind of takes you out of it briefly. Yeah. Okay, the Mad Hatter flips his lid was written by Mike W. Barr, writer, Alan Davis and Paul Neri, artists, Richard Starkings, letterer, Adrian Roy, colorist, Denny O'Neill, editor. At Gotham State Prison, Jervis Tetch makes a final visit with Warden Fisher before leaving on parole. Tetch is concerned that a hat didn't come with his new prison-issued suit, but the warden reminds him that hats have bad connotations for him. He ensures Tetch that his days as the Mad Hatter are behind him, and he should make the most of his parole. Tetch enters the prison car set to take him into the city, only to find Batman and Robin behind the wheel. Batman drives off and attempts to reinforce Tetch's resolve at starting anew, but all the man can focus on is the policeman's hat Robin is wearing. During the years of rehabilitation may have done him no good, the dynamic duo leave the car and Tetch near a newsstand. Batman comments that he hopes Tetch did turn over a new leaf, but if he'd looked back, he would have seen the once-vacant eyes of Tetch turn wide with ghoulish delight as he makes a makeshift hat from a folded newspaper. A week later, Batman and Robin answer the bat signal and arrive at Commissioner Gordon's office. Gordon informs the masked manhunters that Tetch had missed a meeting with his parole officer and had sent an empty hat box to Gordon's office. Empty, save for the note Robin had missed, written onto the lid. It read, I have gone hatless, Batman, but not in the way you want. Signed, The Mad Hatter. Just then, an officer informs our heroes that Mad Hatter was looting the Gotham Liars Club. While his gang holds the attendees at gunpoint, Tetch is passing his top hat around to receive their money and jewelry. As on cue, Batman and Robin arrive on the scene. Tetch switches to a fire helmet that actually shoots flames, and the Cape Crusaders are forced to let him escape while they douse the fire. The next night at Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Jason Todd, Bruce notices clippings missing from his evening paper. Attempting to do some detective work on his own, Jason had cut out every article and ad pertaining to hats. While he appreciates the effort, Bruce fears Tetch will be cleverer with his hat theme this time. Later, as Jason enjoys a piece of chocolate cake, Alfred comments on how it's nice to have the boy around, even if it's difficult to get through the, all the laundry. This gives Bruce the clue he needs to figure out the Hatter's latest themed crime spree. As Bruce and Jason put on their fighting uniforms, Batman explains that Tetch's new crimes are based on hats symbolically, such as the Liars Club the night before. Liars are said to talk through their hats. The Dark Knight figures Tetch's next crime will occur at a hockey game at the sports arena. When a hockey player scores three goals in one game, it's called a hat trick. Predictably, Batman finds Tetch just where he suspected, robbing the gate at the arena. Hatter throws a gas mask at them and then actually releases gas as he and his men run into the Hall of Sports Museum on site. 
Battling amongst the giant statues and displays, including an enormous billiards table, the dynamic duo apprehends the Hatter's gang, but not Tetch himself. Later at Wayne Manor, Bruce informs Jason that he feels they must set a trap for Tetch and use his new crime pattern against him. Bruce calls the society editor of the Gotham Gazette, and the next day, the biggest local headline is Bruce Wayne is throwing his hat into the ring for city councilman. The following night, Bruce hosts a gala event announcing his candidacy. At Batman's request, Commissioner Gordon attends, but he's none too happy. With Bruce playing the fop in public as usual, Gordon chastises him for wasting his money and the city's time, and, and even laments what Bruce's father would think about all of this if he were there. Snapping out of character for a moment, Bruce shoots back that his father can't be there, but quickly returns to his flippant guise. While Jason comments on how much money Bruce spent on this trap, Alfred informs him that the straw hats he ordered had arrived. Spying the hats that read Wayne for Councilman, Bruce mentions he didn't order any hats. This was what they had been waiting for. The Mad Hatter was about to make his move. In seclusion, Bruce and Jason change into Batman and Robin and find Tetch with a remote transmitter, one that sends the straw hats flying about like razor-sharp buzzsaws. The Cape Crusaders and the police quickly respond, but the hats manage to slice a few of the cops and Batman's cape. Hatter makes his escape by climbing a series of hats in a stair-like formation, but when Robin attempts to follow, the hats fly off, leaving him grounded. The boy wonder is soon back on his feet, following Batman and Hatter to the roof, where Tetch heads toward a flying mechanism shaped like a large top hat. Having studied the buzzsaw hats, Batman uses a transmitter to match their frequency, sending Tetch's own weapons against him. They slice into his flying hat and send both it and its pilot tumbling to the roof below. Reaching for his hat, a downed Tetch tells Batman the game isn't over. He pulls a gun from the hat, and as Batman knocks him cold with a strong right cross, the gun goes off. Batman calls back to Robin and tells him it's time to go home. When the boy doesn't answer, the Dark Knight turns to find his young ward lying unconscious on the rain-soaked roof, having been shot by the Hatter's stray bullet. Needless to say, to be continued. So what do you think of this, Ryan? Whew. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Robin shot. You don't see that very often. Uh, <laughs> this isn't an errand that's necessarily known for that. It, no, it, we will definitely come back to that. Setting aside the last two pages and the first three pages, because uh, those are a sort of weird bookend that I think feel very tonally different. The middle chunk of this story, it is a serious take, slightly serious, although full of puns and bad jokes, on the Batman television series. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. fun, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cool story. They, they're doing some interesting things. It's, there are a lot of eye-rolly moments in this one, honestly. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. I, like, I got to this. I was like, wait a minute. The word through was the tip-off? <laughs> Alfred said it's hard to get through the laundry and Batman said, oh, yeah, liars talk through their hat. I'm like, that is not even a, a possible dot you can connect. That is such a dumb revelation. I'm like, no, Mike Barr, take another pass on that one. You, you got to. Like, but, but despite thinking that was a really beyond stupid part of the story, just as, as a connection, it's like, what? Setting that aside, um, the rest of it was fun. It was cool. I, I liked the adventure. Um, but there are some weird moments in the story. It's sort of all over the place. Uh, what did you think overall? Yeah, it's. I think this one feels more like a classic Bill Finger Batman story that they would have adapted into the TV show mm -hmm. uh, more than any of the other ones they've done. But it's really, like you said, it's really strange. The front end is a little, you know, it's it's self-referential. It's you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, Batman. Although Adam West did lament that, you know, that they wouldn't, they couldn't be rehabilitated. Although they tried, especially like with Catwoman and, and characters like that. 
But then, of course, the ending. I mean, here's this dark, dark ending in this silly, silly story. I mean, it's I guess in a way it's kind of weird because it's kind of showing that, yes, we're adapting the stories of the, you know, the kind of old feel of the Batman stories. But the stakes are much different nowadays, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, you know, although Batman and Robin occasionally were sideline shot, you know, back in the day. But they was never you know, they were, you know, they were laid up in the Batcave with a cast on, so they couldn't, you know, they couldn't uh, take part in that adventure. And, you know, Robin would have to team up with Superman or, you know, they'd have to send Robin out in a, a padded Batman suit if Batman was injured or, right. you know, something like that. But, yeah, the whole thing about through uh, uh, – I was trying to figure out – got to put this in the synopsis because it's the only <laughs> – it's the only thing that links it to how they figured out what his whole plot was. But I was trying to make that work, and it's like that's almost as bad as – in the uh, the Batman sixty six movie, when Robin's like, "It was at C, C for Catwoman," <laughs> yes. you know. It's- yes, exactly. So, to some extent, that actually does feel very fitting in in that it's it's stupid and illogical, but. Okay, maybe I would give Mike Mike Barr credit for the characters did make those ridiculous leaps in logic at times. So okay, right, yeah. but it's still yeah no I yeah, that, that's the perfect one. That's the one I always think of. It happened at C C for Catwoman. It's like what <laughs> that shark was pulling my leg. The Joker, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I, lo- I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, going again, starting with this thing, like I, I love this idea that they pick uh, the Mad Hatter up from prison, although apparently didn't clear it with any. It sounds like they just like, or it looks like they just steal a prison car, a prison transport yeah. car, and they take Mad Hatter for a joyride to kind of do like a little scared straight bit, and I really like that. I kind of wish that had been the story, uh, and, and they had played more with that. But you know, it's obviously it doesn't seem to be working because Tetch isn't paying attention to them. He's so fixed on the police hat that Robin is wearing, and then they drop him off and just abandon the car on the street. It looks like. Does, yeah. Does a prison yeah. official have to like go pick that up now? <laughs> like, are they gonna are they gonna call in and tell them where they left the car? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is is he gonna call like Gordon? It's like, hey, Gordon. Um, you might want to get uh, Warden Fisher to go on the uh, corner of Finger and Sprang and pick up that car I dropped off. You know what I mean? It's like, you know. But, like, in the meantime, if anybody were to steal that car and it's got, like, official prison, uh, Gotham State Prison or whatever it is, like, license plates and, ta- and like, a sign on the door, that's a really big deal. <laughs> Elwood, El- Elwood Blues pulls yes. up to get Jake out of prison in the car. Yes. <laughs> My own brother picks me up in a cop car. <laughs> That's right. And then, like, the, the scene isn't even over, and Mad Hatter, like, takes a newspaper and folds it into a hat. So clearly, their scared straight thing did not work. He looks like he's crazier than ever, which is a great facial expression at the bottom of page three. Like, whew. Oh, yeah. The crazy eyes, the, <laughs> the smile, the mustache, which... Who? Uh, I mean, I love the. Uh, it's Alan Davis. We've talked about it so much, but yeah, I do really like the art and the art at the top of page two when Batman and Robin look over the into the back of the car. Uh, Robin's got this devilish smile on his face, and Batman's just looks yeah. like he's not messing around. But uh, right, he's tipping the hat. That the, the again, we've we've said this many times, but I think I don't think people give Alan Davis enough credit for facial expressions that he can do. I mean, he is he is like. Uh, uh, you know, short of Kevin McGuire, I don't think anybody's better at it. Um, and, you know, I do love that Tetch, 
he seems so his eyes are vacant in the you know in the first two pages um you know he he just seems forlorn he's he's his face is drooped down and like and he, he just he seems like a nervous wreck but he's just yeah. he's just kind of in a fog in a, a lot of ways and you know batman's talking to him and he just keeps trying to reach robin's hat and robin smacks his hand you know and <laughs> but as soon as he makes that paper hat like that like you said that shot i mean that's like a dick spraying face you know that's like this like crazy wide you know grin and the gleam in his eye returns and it's it's just a wonderful shorthand to say okay this guy is completely nuts and he's not in arkham asylum which i think is interesting he's in the prison Mm -hmm. which we've talked about that before you know now everybody's in arkham asylum i mean i think (laughs) even if they caught catwoman they'd put her in arkham asylum now uh which i think maybe they have in some one story or another but you know, but back then it's like okay, the, the Joker and Two Face went to Arkham Asylum, and pretty much everybody else went to the prison. Seems like, <laughs> uh, you know, but I mean, he is the Mad Hatter. You know, <laughs> then we get the we get a very nice title page that shows Mad Hatter running away with an old fashioned bank bag. You know, I mean, how you know he's got the money symbol on it, the dollar oh, yeah. sign. Oh, yeah. He's pulling a rope that's dropping dozens of hats on Batman and Robin, and and there's even a deer stalker hat in there, which might be a callback to. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> no, I like it. Yeah, it's a cool title page. I, it feels like a cover or a title page to like a Silver Age adventure or something, and it, it feels very appropriate. It's just weird coming off of the three-page prologue that we just got. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said, they, this whole story could have been, you know, Batman following him around, kind of like the uh, Harley's Day Out episode yeah. of uh, Batman the Animated Series where she's on parole, and she really does try to go straight, and all these awful things keep happening, and mm-hmm. You know, at the end, Batman's like, I had a bad day once, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it, you know, you could do a story like that. Um, but, um, yeah, it, that's not the direction they went in. <laughs> it's like as soon as as soon as soon Batman and Robin walk away, he's right back at it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, of course, Commissioner Gordon is a commissioner again. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we get to see him this time. Last time we heard that it was Commissioner Gordon that had got a call from Sherlock Holmes. We didn't know it at the time, but in the story, he got a call from Holmes. Uh, but he, some, you know, for whatever reason, he's officially Commissioner Gordon again. So who knows what all that captain business was about mm-hmm. a couple months back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, don't. Uh, I thought it was cool that Robin missed the clue. You know, he's looking in the box and Batman flips the lid over and <laughs> there it is on the inside of the lid. That was, you know, it shows Jason still learning the ropes. You know, right. he's. He's still in training, you know, so I, I I like that. That's nice. He tries to make up for it later on by cutting all of the hat-related stuff from the newspaper. <laughs> and Bruce is kind of like, yeah, I was reading that. Why did you why did you cut the newspaper of him? There's a nice little bit there. They telegraphed that there's a councilman stepping down yeah, on yeah. that same page. That's a nice, nice, uh, nice little Easter egg there. If you don't – not reading – because sometimes in comics, the newspapers, it's real text. Other times it's just, you know, mm-hmm. garbage, you know, uh, but that time. It, it actually gives you a clue to later in the story. Yeah, yeah. On that same page, the bottom of page nine, the look on Robin's face when he's eating that chocolate cake, the the expression that Alan Davis can do, like, I don't know whose face that is. It's sort of, it reminds me of like a C.C. Beck, Billy Batson, who our listeners would know from the stories of Shazam. Um, but... <laughs> Not the whip. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, um, it does. Yeah. 
like or is something else it's just it's such a very cartoonish expression just like with this these weird eyes like what what is he looking at that he's just like oh to be that young again and just be that in love with cake <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'd be nice with it <laughs> well you know and of course jason's drawn in the very classic burt ward mm-hmm. red sweater and white you know shirt underneath which also was Superboy clark kent's get up for decades as well yeah. so that's just classic wholesome teenager look in the comics you know yeah, yeah. um the, the the Bruce Wayne on the next panel that looks like um, Neil Adams drawing Clint Eastwood right there, kind of <laughs> with the sweat with sweat back hair. I mean, his face is very Neil Adamsy looking right there. So yeah, it's like you know he can he can jump back and forth between you know these these different styles and it, and it never pops out and looks like somebody you know jumped in and drew the panel for him. It's just it's he adapts it into his own style. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, of course, we get. Um, I have to comment because I made such a. I gushed about it when Batman and Robin once again, when they're at the Liars Club, they have to put out the fire that Mad Hatter starts with his fire helmet. Which I like um, that gimmick. Yeah, that's nice. I, li- I like that a lot. Yeah. And Adrian Roy does a, another great job of really portraying the heat uh, by, you know, everything's in red, yellows and, and golds. And it, it's 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 really nice. Look, and I, like I said, I kind of miss that that old school comic coloring when it comes to things like that. I always thought that was neat in comics when they did that. That's just a, one of Chris's little things he likes. I don't know. <laughs> I like it, too. I like it, too. And, and yeah, like putting on the firefighter helmet and having it like shoot fire feels like maybe it's kind of a setup or a send up to the uh, Batman television show where David Wayne's hat would pop up and it had like it was a weaponized hat. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that itself is just kind of a cool little twist. Uh, in terms of like the Mad Hatter, how he's written, I mean, I, I kind of made the same complaint when we talked about the Scarecrow issue where he does a lot of puns and then he laughs at himself and I don't know if I like that. I mean, I think it's it's a little bit more appropriate for for a Mad Hatter type, but I would think it would be more of the childish, weird uh, Mad Hatter versus this one, who seems more more like the David Wayne one. And I just wonder, I, I would like to know like whose idea this story was. Like if if Alan Davis said he wanted to do a Mad Hatter one, or if Barr had this idea first, or what. Uh, I'm just uh, I'd be interested in their their creative process. So. You know, it's it's kind of weird because it, in a way it feels like this is going to be – in the beginning, this feels like this is kind of going to be the Mad Hatter story. You know, this is going to be – we're going we're gonna, to you know, really dig deep into the character and kind of examine what makes him tick, you know. and But it's really not. I mean it, it becomes a caper, you know, after yeah. those first few pages. It becomes the golden Silver Age caper. And then it's a means to an end to get to that cliffhanger ending, that oh my god ending, you know. Right, right. Uh, so it, it is it is kind of odd that it yeah it's it, it it would be interesting to see who who proposed this and what their initial goal was. Was the Mad Hatter just the utility villain to use to get us to the point at the end of this story, or and then they threw in that nice little bit at the beginning just to kind of flesh it out a little bit. I I mean I don't know, but. Uh, one thing I do know is is that once again Batman and Robin leave the Batcave and are suddenly swinging through the city. <laughs> did Alan did Alan Davis really hate the Batmobile? I mean, <laughs> he, yeah, gosh, I didn't, I forgot about that, but you're right. They show him like getting dressed in the cave, and then it just cuts to him swinging, and then it shows him they're swinging over the city. Yeah, they're not even. And like, it's like we okay. don't even see the car parked in the Batcave. No, it's like there's they're running through the cave. There's you know drapes over some of the equipment, and then the next scene they're literally swinging through the city. Which I mean, how did they get there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe Batman's got the Justice League transporter and he just – or teleporter. I'm sorry. When I say transporter, Shaq gets on me. Justice League teleporter. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's got it in the cave and he gets in there and then he comes out on a rooftop in Gotham. There you go. That's the <laughs> – there's your no prize. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Batman would install it in the Batcave. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's just one of those weird things. I mean we're going to – I know, like I said, I know in Batman Full Circle, Robin drives the classic 1950 Dick Spring Batmobile. I think they're both in it, but I remember there's a scene where Robin takes off in the Batmobile by himself. It's Dick, of course, because I actually used that artwork for an art project in college. So I I remember that. (laughs) I used it as a basis for – I had to do a computer animated uh, little segment. Of course, now that this would look horrible because this was back in the 90s, so the computer animation would look horrible now. But I made like a a toy Batmobile that came out of a box, and that artwork was on the box. (laughs) So I I remember this. So I I know it's there, but in this series, I don't think he ever draws the Batmobile, <laughs> which is just weird. Yeah. I think every artist um, would want to put their stamp on it, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's you know, I mean, you don't have to, you can just make one up. I mean, nobody, you know, the, maybe back then they're like, no, you got to use the 1980 Bat, the 80s Batmobile, you know, you got to use the, the superpowers looking Batmobile. But you know, in a couple of years, we'll see Norm Brayfogel design several before he kind of settles on the one he likes to draw the most, but. Could have, he could have came up with his own, but uh, no. Uh, of course, Batman's, you know, you're talking about the logic leap. Batman leaping to the hockey game is a bit of a stretch, too. I mean, because <laughs> there could be other hat-related things going on in Gotham. Yeah, I mean, check out the hockey game, and you know, but he was completely right right off the bat. Yeah, hat trick, there's a hockey game tonight, he's going to rob the gate, you know. <laughs> And then, of course, that gets us straight into the Bill Finger tribute with the giant statues and pool table. And I mean, it's it's really neat. I mean, but it's straight out of a Bill Finger, Dick Sprang Batman story. I mean, you know, all these giant the giant props that Gotham City was famous for or, you know, Batman uses a giant pool cue as a, a to pole vault onto the onto the table, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and kicks the balls around Robin. Robin spring catapults off of a giant golf club that I don't really know why that would move on a statue, but hey, that's okay. Uh, So it's, it's, it's neat. It's neat. This is definitely, and this puts this again squarely. It's almost like maybe Barr was trying to make us feel all nice, warm, and fuzzy and safe with the trappings of the Silver Age, yeah. you know, Golden Age Silver Age. And then, bam, at the end, there's Robin shot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> one, one thing that I didn't like as much, I mean, it's fine. It didn't take me out of the story. It was just something I noticed that kind of let me down was that in the first two parts, at the Liars Club and here at the, the in, like, the pool table, all of the Mad Hatter's goons are dressed the same. They're all dressed as mm. cowboys, but in particular, they've got like blue jeans, orange flannel shirts and hats and, and bandanas covering their face. But it's like, I, yeah, they're all wearing hats, but it doesn't scream to me Mad Hatter goon. Like it could be a Western goon or something that could be they could belong to anybody's shtick. And later on, yeah. like, when we go to the third uh, confrontation, when they're at Wayne Tower or whatever, um, they're all wearing like fezes and stuff like that. And it's uh, okay. Like I just, I wish there was a little bit more variety in their outfits. Yeah. Well, this gang here, they came from shame. They were shame's old gang. Cliff Robertson, <laughs> you know, that's, what, that's right. They were just waiting for him to get out of prison. So they're just sitting around not doing anything. <laughs> I like to think the TV show used the exact same extras for all the villains and just put them in different costumes from week to week. Yeah, that's like, I'm going to work for the Penguin. I need a black turtleneck and uh, 
a bowler hat and a black domino mask. <laughs> I get rid of these Joker, the the Johnny Cap with the red vest, and the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the color the co- color coordinated uh, and uniformed henchmen of the Batman TV series. <laughs> uh, it's fun. We got a comment uh, when we get back to Wayne Manor when Bruce is is going to hatch his plot to run for councilman. The giant, humongous portrait of the Waynes that is like probably over twenty feet tall. That's. <laughs> That's in his study. I mean, wow. I mean, that's impressive. And and, and we will see this portrait again in this series uh, with uh, Alan Davis. I, I will say that. But notice that Thomas Wayne does not look anything like the Thomas Wayne from Batman Year One. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> He, I mean, he looks like Bruce. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the pre-crisis Thomas Wayne that just looked like Bruce. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no mustache, no parted hair. You know, it's old school Thomas Wayne. It, it, I mean, it's Barn Davis are still on Earth One. I mean, they're, they're just, <laughs> I think I think we could kind of just say that they're they're at least as of right now they're 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 still on Earth One. I think. <laughs> I mean, in a, in a realistic world, it's it's kind of hard to imagine this guy who has grown up for like 20 years later, he still hasn't been able to put up with the grief of losing his parents. He still hasn't been able to move beyond that. That is the conceit of Batman. He can't. But if he's living in a house where there is a portrait of his dead parents the size of an IMAX screen, yeah, I can understand why you would sort of be haunted and always living in their shadow for the rest of your life. Like, that's that is an issue. It's, well, just, a well, really, maybe keep... it's just really big, is okay. what I'm saying. It's a big portrait. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe he keeps it. You know, if you want to get all deep and psychological about it, maybe he keeps it up and has a so so huge of an image, so he can't forget, so he yeah. won't let himself. So because he's already set himself on this course, and it's kind of like in Mask of the Phantasm when he falls in love and he says it just doesn't hurt as much anymore. You know, right. because he find, which is a great great bit in that movie. I love yeah. that movie, but yeah. but you know, it's it's like he finds something to fill that hole that's not you know this this mission for justice. Or, or vengeance if you've subscribed to that, which I really don't. But, I mean, if you, like you said, if you <laughs> take an IMAX screen, turn it sideways, and put it up in your house with your parents' pictures on it, then, yeah, you're probably going to stay on task, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and speaking of Thomas Wayne, we, there's an interesting conversation with Bruce and Gordon where Gordon seems like he knew Thomas Wayne here. Mm-hmm. You can read that into that, that he knew, like, you know, if your father were here, he'd be, you know... I mean, that's what somebody would say if they were had been friends with your father, not yeah. that they knew them by reputation. I mean, you could say, okay, he knew him, you know, he knew him by reputation. So this Jim Gordon in this series seems to be a Gotham, you know, he's a Gotham native who knew Thomas Wayne. Whereas over in Batman right now, we've got Jim Gordon that came from Chicago, you know, uh, and just moved to Gotham. So, And that's, I mean, it, it raises so many questions, and we've had that conversation in when we were talking about year one of, and this will actually come up in our listener feedback, of is year one really the definitive origin? Is it its own little world? Does it work in the greater DC universe? Should it be something apart? And actually, I was talking, uh, Mike Gillis was talking to me about this uh, a few days ago on Facebook, and this was a question that we asked a lot during the first couple episodes of this podcast, and we've sort of forgotten about it, but I think like we kind of need to come back to it every once in a while. 
is this story a post-crisis Batman story? Like, mm. and, and but I guess like the answer doesn't matter because we what we keep coming to is like at the time that this story was being published, I don't think they knew what that meant. I don't think they knew what post-crisis right. meant. And as we we talked about when we were doing the the creator spotlights on people like Alan Davis and Mike Barr, like I guess like they were writing these so far ahead, like they didn't know what was going to go on in year one necessarily. They might have had broad strokes, but they didn't know the details, and they certainly didn't know the cultural impact it would have. So, right. like, you could have published this, this story could have been told two years earlier. This story could have been in 1984, 1985, and I mm-hmm. don't think I don't think anybody would have like noticed the difference. No, no. And I, and I think that could be said by about a lot of their their version, their treatment of the characters in their world. Yeah, these things don't these things aren't colliding because unlike what was going on in Wonder Woman and in the Superman family of books, like I, I don't think Denny O'Neill knows what the vision of Batman is yet for this world going forward because they didn't have a fresh start because he is just picking up. So it's a very sporadic picking and choosing what this new continuity is going to be like. And we're getting great stories that are a year from now, basically going to be sort of invalidated. Right. The whole, the end, the, the climax of this story, this, this moment, like at the end when, when Jason is shot, like this is such a big deal, but six weeks after this story came out, six <laughs> weeks you get, did Robin die tonight? Where the first Robin, Dick Grayson being shot, that retcon changes everything about the Batman and Robin relationship. And it's like, dude, you just did that story with a different character and it didn't mean the same thing. So it's this really weird time period where you've got these stories that these are not the same universe, really. And and that's sort of what this whole podcast is going to be about is is taking these disparate elements left over after the crisis and weaving them into something coherent. But a lot of it is going to be left on the wayside. Yeah, you know, and and like you said, I mean, the fact that and, and not to telegraph what's going to come, but uh, I mean, I think a lot of people have obviously read these stories. But yeah, you know, a 13 year old Jason gets shot, and you know, if, if he pulls through, then everything's fine and dandy. But 19 year old adult Dick Grayson gets shot, and <laughs> oh, you're fired. You know, uh, which good God, I can't wait to get to that. Uh, <laughs> but oh man, it's all it's all in the trailer, folks, and I ain't kidding. And Ryan, you know, he, he's right. He's right. What he says in the trailer. But, um, you know, it just occurred to me, you know, you had Denny O'Neill as the editor. And really, with Davis and Barr working so far ahead, it was really up to his office to make sure that there is consistency. You know, he should have caught and said, oh, wait, wait, Gordon, this Gordon isn't from Gotham. He wouldn't know Thomas Wayne. You know, we need to change that, Mm. you know, because what's what Frank's doing in in year one. I mean, later they retconned that Gordon had been in Gotham and then went to Chicago and all this stuff. But anyway. But if you think about when O'Neill was a Batman writer, there weren't and, – and he'll tell you this in interviews you'll see. You didn't really have the assignment of being a Batman writer. Basically in the 70s, late 60s, early – through the 70s, the editor was Julius Schwartz, and he had certain writers he liked to work with. And he would bring in – you know, if you had a script and you brought it to him and he liked it, then you know he might add you to his pool of talent that he used. Basically you had – at first you had Denny O'Neill. You had uh, Frank Robbins on Batman and Detective going back and forth. And then you also had Bob Haney writing The Brave and the Bold for another editor. So you had these different – basically different versions of Batman existing. 
existing at the same time anyway. Yeah, the detective and Batman stories were pretty were fairly consistent, but you still had different flavors. And then in later years, you had David V. Reed writing Batman, who was even made Haney stuff seem, like we've said before, seem, you know, sane, uh, not zany, you know. Uh, and, and then you had O'Neill would write here and there, you know, still Batman stories while he was editing and doing writing, writing other things. So there wasn't like a particular solid established take on who Batman was then. So maybe that influenced what O'Neill was doing here because there didn't have to be one then. So maybe he was approaching it as Julius Schwartz did. But the problem is, is that everywhere else in the DC universe, everything's being very, you know, like you said, Wonder Woman and Superman are having, you know, very definitive. No, this happened. This happened. This didn't happen anymore. You know, and so with, with Batman not being that way, it just kind of stands out. And it, you know, leaves podcasters like us who are examining it 30 years later going, OK, wait a minute. This doesn't match up. <laughs> But it's fun to point out, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 it is. But yeah, the the moment in their conversation that that sparked this little uh, tangent, the thing about Gordon mentioning like Thomas Wayne, you know, saying like your father would be ashamed. Bruce snaps at him and just he's like, "Well, my father's not here." <laughs> it's like, the temperature just yeah. dropped in the room ten degrees, and it's like this is where it's like, what story is Barr trying to tell? Because you know, the beginning of the story, we have this very cool, interesting, kind of weird, but this very interesting take. Are we gonna like scare the villain straight? But no, he's deeply psychologically troubled. Then we get into this light-hearted 60s television show meets Dick Sprang or Bill Finger type of adventure. And then we have this jarring moment right here where it's like, oh yeah, my dad is dead and I have issues about that, so don't bring it up, Commissioner. It's like, okay, yeah. calm down, calm down. And then, you know, get back into the lighthearted action and then we end with the, the hero the sidekick getting shot. And it's like, the tone of this story, it's like, I all over the place. I, I feel like... I feel like Mike Barr wants to write these serious stories, these complicated stories, presenting Batman as the type of guy who uses somebody as a human shield or as the type of guy who would, you know, threaten somebody with prison violation and not like violating parole, but the other kind. Yeah. Like he wants to, he wants Batman to be this kind of like dark, hard boiled pulp character. And I feel like maybe it's Alan Davis's influence wants to do these love letters to the 60s. And they're trying to strike mm. a balance, and a lot of the times it works. But every once in a while, it's like, wow, they, this story is butting up against itself. And, and these things don't really work in the same setting. Mm. I just felt like, yeah. like the moments where the story like totally shifted were very obvious and very jarring. And yeah, it, it just made me think kind of like more than ever, maybe, maybe the story is being compromised by what Barr wants to do versus what Davis wants to do. So I, I don't know. Mm. Might be, yeah. I mean, that could be it. I I do think that Davis, I mean, the art, he handles it really well because, I mean, you got Bruce with this huge grin when Gordon's giving him, you know, giving him crap about blowing his money and he doesn't even know what party he's going to run for with or, you know, he's affiliated with. And, and then, you know, then the next panel, Bruce's face just completely changes, like changes to stone. He's got this look like he could just like, if he could had heat vision, Gordon's head would be a match. You know, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, he does a great job of, of, of the transition and Gordon's face is all back in his neck and Jason's eyes are going back and forth in the background <laughs> looking at him. It's like a kid, when a kid gets caught in a, you know, adult <laughs> conversation he doesn't want to be in. It's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's handled really well, but yeah, it, it, this, this one is, and I didn't even really think about it when I was, you know, reading it or doing the notes, but the more you brought it up, this is an odd story, which you're really kind of. 
and what's really even odder is – is that a word, odder? More odd. That's <laughs> not an otter, like animal. Uh, you know, next issue, they're going to try to integrate some of what's going on in year one into this series. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how that goes, you know, because we're going to get the new origin as we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about. But it, it is – of course, you still have some classic tropes like, you know, Bruce pours his, his uh, champagne out into the plant, like, mm-hmm. and so he won't drink mm-hmm. alcohol. And, you know, it's, I think it's cute. But yeah. – uh, yeah, you know, then we're right after that moment, we're right back into an, you know, an Adam West type, you know, adventure. I mean, this is where, you know, the villain comes in and I mean, the whole gimmick of Bruce, you know, Bruce Wayne using his uh, wealth and influence to as bait. I mean, how many episodes of the TV show was that the well, trick? You know, I remember there was the Mr. Freeze episode where he freezes everybody in the pool mm-hmm. at, behind Wayne Manor, you know. I mean, things like that. So it's it's straight out of that. Of course, there's some great action beats. It's a little bloodier because the hats are actually slicing into the cops. And, and I, I did think it was funny, funny. Batman rolls for that shotgun. I'm like, well, given what happened last issue, what's going to happen here? Yeah. <laughs> I did love – I love the moment when, when Batman tells Robin to look sharp as the hats are flying around. And Robin just kind of goes, yeah, let me take care of the humor, boss. <laughs> it's just, I was like, right. yeah, Robin is the one who makes those jokes and makes, cracks those puns. It's like Batman can be a little bit more serious than that. I, I just thought that was a cute little exchange. So. Yeah, yeah, it was. That was nice. And and the, the Batman's got this completely, you know, stone cold look on his face when he says it. Robin's got this big wide eyed grin, you know, which <laughs> is perfect. But yeah, Batman rolls for that the shotgun, the cop when the cops drop, mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, is he going to like start shooting the hats with the gun? No, he picks it up and <laughs> locks the hats as they're coming to him. But you know, based on what happened last issue you know it could be pistol or you know <laughs> shotgun packing batman you know so. <laughs> uh yeah we get to the end and matt hatter's got the flying hat contraption and yeah you know that's pretty uh comic book silly in a lot of ways but we are in the dc universe and the joker had a hover car a few issues back so <laughs> you know why not you know why not so I do think it's, you know, again, I know we're, we're beating this horse to death, but Batman, I mean, how Batman must have looked at the hats for like a split second and figured out the frequency that they, the remotes was transmitting at and oh, yeah. was able to take <laughs> over the hats. <laughs> if that's not straight out of Adam West, I don't know what is, you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> So, yeah, again, again, I mean, like literally the page before that we get this this big, oh, my God, this is for real event. Batman's, you know, I study the frequency. Robin, if you had paid attention, you would have noticed that the <laughs> frequency of these hats can be, you know, jammed by the, by, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's wow. You know, it's this Adam West like exposition he gives uh, and he, you know, takes over the hats and takes out the Mad Hatter. But, uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> Wow, yeah. Mm. But then then the last panel is I mean that you know it's it's fantastic Alan Davis, you know Batman's cape is all ripped up from the hats and you know it's like this moment frozen in time because the mad hatter is falling because Batman has just turned. He had him by his lapels holding yeah. him up. He's unconscious. Batman turns, the mad hatter's falling. There's fire in the background. And he screams, Robin, you know, and, and uh, or Robin, you know, <laughs> and uh, rain's falling on the roof. Robin's laying there. You can't really see any blood or anything, or maybe some of the rain was supposed to be blood, but it's colored as rain. I don't know, but uh, we don't really know where he shot, but he's obviously been shot. And uh, then we get the blurb. Next issue, the way it began, the new origin of Batman. 
<laughs> Which is interesting because the next issue we will be talking about on this podcast is the fourth and final chapter of year one, the origin of Batman. Yes. So yes. it's, yeah, that's going to be a weird month. Those two stories back to back. No, it is. A, it's a striking. It's a great cliffhanger panel. Um, I do think maybe the coloring is a little because they don't show a gunshot wound. They don't show blood, and we don't see the bullet ricochet. We just kind of get like the gun goes off when it's not. But like Robin isn't even in that panel or anything. So you kind of your brain has to work a little bit harder to say, oh, he must have been shot by the ricochet. I think mm-hmm. we're really not going to get yeah. that confirmed until the next issue because otherwise true. it's like did did something else happen to him? Um, it's it's a little bit confusing, but. Just just as an image itself, it's a really striking uh, capper for the the issue. But and yeah, and like I said, like I, I, I'll bring it up more when we cover the next issue of Detective. But like, I wonder what Mike Barr was thinking. Like, you know, having this great idea of you know putting Robin in jeopardy like this and using this as and a couple of years from now, this will be. Old hat, as they would say, to use. <laughs> it's like, it's like, how many times are we going to see Robin's life in jeopardy in basically the same way? And and nobody is going to remember this version of the story that Barr did first. <laughs> well, you know, in his very first story, the as Robin, the pre-crisis Jason, got beat up by Crazy Quilt and left for dead. I mean, in the very first story. So it's like, poor Jason, just in any reality, was doomed from the start. I mean, it's just... <laughs> No, some somebody upstairs didn't like that kid, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know it's it's interesting. And in, in is from the Den column. Uh, Denny O'Neill gushes about the detective creative team. He 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 talks about how he enjoys his story conferences with Barr, talking to Alan Davis, which is kind of ironic because Davis later said he didn't communicate with uh, uh, O'Neill didn't communicate enough with him. He felt like he was kind of off on his own. He didn't get enough feedback or, Mm -hmm. you know, anything from him. And uh, he loved getting the finished artwork in the mail. He said he hadn't talked to Paul Neary yet, but you know, and he says next issue, they'll try to clear up any confusion with what's going on in Batman. Well, you know, Denny, I mean, I'm just (laughs) saying, you know, you might want to take a look at the book that come out the same month. As issue three of Batman Year One come out, I know they might have worked far ahead, but you know, word balloons can be relettered. I'm just <laughs> saying that you know, you didn't even probably have to change the artwork. You could have just changed. You know, you just could have had. You know, you had could have had Gordon say, you know, what are you wasting your money on something like this for? You know, I know I'm. I you know I know I'm not. Uh, he I know he wouldn't want to say that, but I, I know what happened to your parents. I've read the stories. Why don't you put your money to good use or something? And then Bruce could have snapped back at him or something, you know, or I mean, that it's not a big problem for me. I'm just saying that that's, you know, it's very indicative of the fact that literally these I mean, it's like we're reading the Batman of two different Earths at this point. I mean, we're more than ever. I feel like we're still on Earth one and detective and we're in, you know, whatever you call the new new the new universe in in Batman at this point, you know, and, and like others and some people could argue well, year one's too realistic, too gritty to have sprung forth the the Batman world that came after it. But they did use it as the beginning point, whether it right. really works or not, based on how the story was told, it was still the basis of everything that came afterwards. And while other things are other stories that we are going to cover will some of them very quickly be retconned away, even as they're supposed to be establishing this new continuity. Mm. Batman Year One will stand until until Batman Year Zero starts, really. So, <laughs> yeah. Overall, it's. I mean, I've said this a lot. It's 
It's a weird story that has a lot of great elements individually, but they bump up against each other because the tone changes so much from one scene to the next. I, I really liked the first couple pages and just this idea of Batman and Robin taking, basically kidnapping one of their villains and trying to spook him into, you know, like going on the straight life. Um, of course, then that's quickly abandoned. And we go to this very 60s adventure with some just dumb revelations with the, the talking through their hat and get, just because somebody says the word through. And then Batman baiting Mad Hatter into his own little trap just because he's throwing his hat into the campaign ring or something. I was like, oh, okay, this you're really working hard for some of these for some of these connections, Mike. But it's still it's a lot of fun. It's a it's a nice little send up to so much of what we like about the the classic Batman stories. But then yeah, there are just these little moments where it's like this is a very serious, very adult type of Batman when the rest of the story didn't feel like that. And I keep being reminded because of how different this is that it's like, okay, we're six months after crisis at this point, but it doesn't feel like we've crossed that threshold yet. And pretty soon we're going to get to a point where for the purposes of a linear continuity, this story doesn't matter or this story never happened. Um, that doesn't right. mean we can't enjoy it. And, and anybody who complains about retcons, we still have the experience of reading it and enjoying it. The story still means something to you if it connected with you on, on an emotional level. And it can. But in terms of creating a meta arcing narrative within the DC universe, this story will be null and void in a couple of months. Yeah. So. I blame Dr. Manhattan. I'm just saying. <laughs> we all know now that it was all Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> That's right. DC, just stick it to Alan Moore a little bit more. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, while things sound great now in Detective, you know, uh, in three issues, this band will have broken up well we've got we've got well we've only got two more issues with with davis don't we yeah yeah that's right we got two more issues with davis so oh man (laughs) (laughs) uh and we only got one more issue with miller and mazzuccelli then it's oh lord okay it's gonna Uh, be it's gonna be an interesting couple of months when we're doing max allen collins new batman adventures run side by side with some of the uh todd mcfarlane detective issues those will be those will be some fun episodes. <laughs> They're going to challenge us to find our joy, <laughs> to stick with the fire and water mantra, I think, maybe. <laughs> People, I will just tell you, Chris is going to have so much fun during the spinner rack segments talking about what else was on sale during those months. <laughs> That's right. The spinner rack segment will now be an hour and a half long. <laughs> <laughs> and then 20 uh, minutes of listener feedback. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Oh, with that, you want to take a break, and then we'll come back with listener feedback. How's that sound? That sounds good to me. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukonori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... 
The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. Nightcast, episode 12, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Andrew in Belfast, Ange at Dr. Ange70, Bat at Shapirak, Brad Dade, David Ace Gutierrez, Dean Miller, Film and Water Podcasts, Jen Martin, Greg Arujo, Jim Bal, Joe Crawford, Justice's First Dawn, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Longbox Crusade, Matches Balone, Man at Mazinger1978, Mike Gillis, The Nerds Uncanny, Pod Dylan, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Special Agent Lang, Stephen Bird, Superman Movemen, hmm, that sounds weird, <laughs> Ted, <laughs> Ted Kilvington, Terrence Castanguay, Too Dangerous, Transform and Rollout, Treasury Comics, and Trekker Talk. I bet you that Transform and Rollout's Rob. <laughs> it definitely is. <laughs> Uh, if I left anybody off of that list, I apologize. Please let me know, and we will give you a shout-out on the next episode. Over on Facebook, the last episode received likes and shares from Andrew Leyland. Hey, Andrew Leyland again. Billy LaCase, Brad Dade, Brian Cray, Charlie Niemeyer, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics, Daniel Doherty, David Foster, DeBeige, Derek William Crabb, J. David Weeder, J. David Weeder again, Jeremy Gunter, Jamie McGlinchey, Max Romero, Mike Peacock, Patrick Delmore, Rich Matsumoto, Rob Kelly, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, Scott Dunnan, Sean Emmons, The Irredeemable Shag, Siskoid, Steve J. Rogers, and Stephen Bird. We got several Facebook comments after last episode. Rich Matsumoto said, You guys do a great job with the podcast. I really appreciate how in-depth you get with each issue, and of course I enjoy both your perspectives on the issues as well. You have an excellent podcast, and I look forward to every two weeks or thereabouts. Well, thank you very much for saying that, Rich. Yes, thank you. It was very nice. Uh, Robin McDonald said, It's funny, maybe only to me how this podcast was foretold in the April Fool's episode of From Crisis to Crisis 2010. Great ideas always find a way to endure, maybe. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm going to have to – I don't know if I've listened – I probably did listen to that episode, but it's been years ago. I'll have to go back and <laughs> and go back and listen to it again. <laughs> yeah, really. I wonder if you made a joke about like doing basically the same thing for the Batman universe, which – you know, I, I mean I, I'll admit like you know, when, when we were coming with this idea, I ran it by Michael Bailey first. I was like, do you mind if I basically take the same approach that you guys are doing for Superman with Batman? And he was like, no, go do it. Have fun. It's officially sanctioned. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure he probably regrets that now that we've done it because he wants to cover it. So he's doing the yeah. other ones. So. Uh, Robert Myers admitted that he'd never read Batman Year One before, but he did watch the movie. I'm assuming he means the animated movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I do know some people who think of Batman Begins as the movie version of Batman Year One, and it's like, not really. Anyway, uh, Robert then said, At the time, as a kid, I thought this was an Elseworlds story, so I passed on it. I just never got around to reading it. I own it now, so it will finally be checked off. Well, good. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think I think that's one of those, uh, you know, Batman Year One's one of those, uh, you know, essential reading volumes that we really, I mean, even if you're not a Batman fan, you probably ought to read it. You know, it's, well, I don't agree that, you know, you have to read this or whatever, you know, but it's like, yeah, it's on most lists. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy it. And I, I like the animated movie. I thought it was pretty well done. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. yeah. Patrick Delmore, who reacted strongly to 20... <laughs> 
So I almost said it wrong again. Patrick Delmore, who reacted to strongly to 221B Baker Street gaff last episode, said, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you for putting that in. Uh, he said, apologies at the top of the show to Holmes fans. Maybe I should leave less nitpicky comments in the future. Uh, no, Patrick, keep us on our toes. Keep us honest. That's, uh, you know, we appreciate it. You know, uh, that you, you did not, you said it in a very, you know, you, you weren't uh, mean-spirited with it. You were just, you were, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you were offended, but, you know, I don't want, <laughs> I don't really blame you. So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> also not the only one who pointed it out. So, yeah, that's fine. Uh, Dan Doherty said, while comparing the original issues with the year one trade paperback, I noticed that on page 67, panel four, the date July 5th is almost completely obliterated by the rain. I have the first printings of the DC Comics trade, the Warner Books edition, and the complete Frank Miller Batman by Longmeadow Press, because reasons, and all three versions have the same coloring error. I don't know if newer collected editions have fixed this mistake or not. Uh, I can say that my version, which is the reprint version that I got a couple of years ago, has the same mistake. In fact, like, I don't know if I ever saw that before where it says July 5th on that page. Like, I didn't notice that when I was doing my read-through and synopsis. Uh, I don't think I noticed it until he pointed it out. Maybe years ago I might have seen it, but I don't think so. I never caught it either. Yeah, it's it's like very faint. You can just barely see it. It, it almost looks like it's blending like just background into the scene because it's when uh, Gordon and Essen are at the diner and it's raining out. Uh, it, it's a oh. it's a faint mistake, but and I don't remember if I mentioned that when we did our fir- when we covered Batman four hundred four. Like my copy of the trade paperback, I think is the third version of Batman Year One that I've had, and I never had any of the original issues. I've always had the paperbacks, but I think I've gone through three of them because of different situations so but yeah my version is a more recent reprint and it's it definitely has that same error so good catch mm. uh j david weeder said i need to stop listening to ryan Daly's shows while driving between the whip stinger and shazam thunderclap i scared the people in the car next to me with joker-like laughter i think chris franklin is trying to kill me <laughs> are you driving dave the whip <laughs> Shazam! Stop it. Stop it. This is more work I have to do, damn it. That's right. And then Dave added, it's a good weekend to be a Batman podcast fan. It's always a good weekend to be a Batman podcast fan. Well, it certainly is because he he had just released a new episode and then Bailey and Andy Leyland dropped their first episode and we dropped ours. So it was, uh, yeah, hopefully if, if this trend continues, we'll be a very good place. So. Drop all your other podcasts and just listen to the different Batman podcasts. <laughs> Except the other Fire and Water podcast, of course. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Um, Moving on to the website comments from last episode, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And as always, we try to represent everyone who leaves a comment on this section, but we might not read every single word of every comment for the sake of expediency. Our first comment came from Rob Kelly from the upcoming Superman Minute podcast. Hmm, That sounds familiar, Chris, doesn't it? (laughs) Hmm. First I've ever heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Rob says, I remember how striking the bedsheet pattern on the final page was in the collective edition. I had no memory that it wasn't in the original. Not a big fan of creators going back and messing with their original work. Cough, special edition, cough. Uh, but there are de- some definite improvements here, taking advantage of more sophisticated printing techniques. 
Yes, Rob says, someone with 12 cats, a life I aspire to, has to be careful that their place doesn't get too rank. But I don't get the sense that these are indoor cats. I figure Selena lets her kitties come and go as they please, offering the proverbial three hots and a cot if they want. So the place is probably not too offensive. That makes sense. I, I, I would be willing to buy that, that she just keeps her window open and the cats kind of come and go. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rob goes on, as you mentioned, this issue is mostly an extended action sequence, but it's what I like about it. Out of the four issues, year one is mostly just people talking, so it's a nice change of pace to have this bravura set piece that finally lets us see Batman in action for an extended period of time. The way Mazzuccelli paces the scene with the cat as we follow it out the window and into Selina's waiting arms is masterful. I agree, we praise that so much, and everybody talks about that scene too, so... Mm-hmm. Finally, Rob said, regarding the feedback, it's a funny idea to think that Bats is showing Holmes old issues of Detective Comics. Holmes probably took one look and said, Bob Kane clearly didn't draw this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so good. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, we're not quite done with um, Bob Kane and art swipes because we're going to have some art and some upcoming issues that Bob Kane will make his own <laughs> in 1989. I'm just uh, we'll we'll make sure to point that out when we get to it. <laughs> uh, Vera Wild said, "Okay, I'm sorry, guys, but I can't leave this alone." So about Selena beating up the pimp and the question of whether or not this settles the specifics of her sex work profession status. I feel that your heteronormative, cis-centric perspective has left you blind to the issue of the sex-positive practice of mutually non-consensual... Nah, I'm just messing with you. You're right, this dead horse was already thoroughly beaten, with everything from a riding crop to a velvet-laced cat of nine tails. But come on, admit it, you liked getting beaten just a little bit. And here, Vera challenged me to uh, insert a new sound effect. So, because she asked, I will oblige, and for those of you who are going to be made really uncomfortable, I apologize for what comes next. (sighs) Vera then goes on to disagree about Catwoman's costume, saying, I don't think Mazzuccelli pulled off the Catwoman suit either. Her silhouette is gorgeous, but when we get up close, the whiskers kill it for me every time without fail. That's the kind of detail that really needs to be left out. It's distracting in the same way that I think it would be distracting if Batman's mask had a more authentic, upturned nose piece. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it, this this just, I think he drew it better than anybody, but yeah, this just, uh, it just ain't a great costume, I don't think. It's not a great look for Catwoman. I, I do like the simplicity of just like the gray jumpsuit, but it's, it isn't my favorite Catwoman costume, but I do... I think Mazzuccelli had a good look for it. The, the whiskers don't bother me that much, but uh, we, we hardly ever see it, so it doesn't really matter. I think on the animated series, when they took that basic look and added the black boots and gloves and added the uh, the belt, the circular belt, mm. I think that dressed it up just enough to, to kind of break some of that up. Plus, they didn't have whiskers. Right. Uh, but I think I really liked that look for Catwoman. I thought that was a sharp look. I agree. I agree. I like that a lot, yeah. Uh, Vera also said, The small army of cats kind of bugs me. I think it's the inherent association with any more than three cats being a sign of a kooky, if not outright crazy person. I would have preferred that she only had a couple of cats and her affection for them is shown through direct action rather than abundance. But then again, there's only so many pages, and a multitude of cats gets a comparable message across in fewer images. So sometimes you have to go for the economical route. Yeah, it's funny that she brings that up because... 
However you associate crazy cat person and that stereotype, that trope, like whatever your view of crazy cat person is, I never associate that with sexy in any way, shape, or form. If one of you listening, if you do, if crazy cat person is your kind of kink, if that's sexy for you, I can't help you there. You know, go, <laughs> go on with that. Um, but like they never cross the mind. So, and Selena Kyle, Catwoman is sex for me. So like, it, it's weird. Like even the association of just having that many cats around seemed inconvenient and potentially smelly to me, but it didn't make me think she's crazy cat lady. Like, so that's weird. Um, mm. she got a ton of pets and she's got a uh, underage, you know, girl living <laughs> with her too. So it's like, that's like, you know, just like sex appeal alarm. Just like it, it, it there's no, there's absolutely no sex appeal there. You know, it's whoa. Okay. <laughs> the, the Michelle Pfeiffer, Selena Kyle at the beginning of Batman returns kind of ventures into that territory. That's one that I could mm-hmm. see. They could have been depicting her as crazy cat, lady, homebody, just lonely person in the beginning, and then she goes through her metamorphosis, which, God, yeah. it's, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I love everything about that fight, especially Batman quickly reduced to a couple of weapons and his mitts. Despite that, he still manages to beat the goon squad even before the bats come. And you see how the approach to life in general is different between Batman and these particular cops. They could not care less for the dead fragrance, but he gets shot in the arm saving a stray cat. And Gordon saying, they're making him a hero is fantastic. Batman is a populist hero, fighting for the people whether it be supervillains or entrenched corruption. For me, that is the biggest thing about that last panel. I think Gordon looks at the gun as a symbol of all that is wrong with the city and the system. Gordon wants to be a hero. He wants to become a hero for the people. But he needs to break away from the system he has plugged into. As for Essen, Mazzuchelli does a good job of subtly vamping her up. Not cheesecake, but not dowdy either. Compare her to Mrs. Gordon with her tired face and frumpy clothes. Add the stress and pressure of being a cop and working together, I can understand Gordon's temptation. Just sad he gave in. Man, I love this story. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of Angel's points there. Those are, yeah, those are good. Yeah, I mean, we never do see... I mean, the most attractive we see Barbara is when she's rubbing Jim's back. She's right. got her hair up, and right. and she, you know, she looks pretty attractive there. But every other time, she just looks like, you know, she again looks very frumpy, very tired, you know, and 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 you know, and we don't see a whole lot of her. That's like, you know, I mean, that's probably the most one of the most supportive scenes where she's like, you know, it's uh, you know, it's Merkel. He says they got a giant bat. The chicken will keep or something. You know, that's like the most character that she's given that that isn't doesn't involve her being pregnant or any you know it's right. she could just be his wife his girlfriend whatever you know um so yeah unfortunately she's kind of treated as the almost like the ball and chain i mean you know it's which is unfortunate but you can look at it that way you know yeah uh so so yeah it's kind of yeah it's too bad for her and it's it is unfortunate to make the the physical comparisons, considering that Barbara is pregnant throughout this entire story up until like the very last chapter that we get to. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of kicking her while she's down, and I feel really bad for that. Of course, you know, having a, a wife who right now is seven and a half months pregnant, but I just right. Uh, anyway, yeah, it, it's it, they're good points. So, 
David Ace Gutierrez said, Could this be my favorite issue of Batman of all time? It just might be. The M&M team got so much right here. As to the ongoing debate about shoehorning this series into continuity, this is something that we were mentioning before, of course it won't fit. This is the worst Gotham's ever been depicted. This is probably the one version of Gotham where it makes sense that nobody would care about a pair of wealthy parents getting gunned down. This is the type of town where that would probably be celebrated with a lot of serves them right and whatnot. But you know what? It doesn't have to fit. It works as a story. If people have a hard time rectifying where to place this four-issue gem, what happens when Batman has five books going on simultaneously during the downtimes when they're not interconnected? Once again, <laughs> another good show, Ryan and Franklin. I use your first name when you have me on your show. <laughs> well, I guess I know what I got to do then, don't I? <laughs> So. <laughs> Got to come up with something. I, I told, uh, I, I said something like, I think the monkeys was a uh, rerun on Saturday mornings <laughs> after its initial network run. So maybe we'll do a Saturday morning fever on the monkeys. <laughs> there you go. Have them on one of the uh, Superman minute episode runs where you guys go. There you go. Sure. That'd work. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> uh, I, I'll go ahead and invite you, even though Rob probably didn't want you on there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they're very good uh, friends. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. Uh, our buddy Martin Gray, who sends us stuff from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, said, I'm another one who finds the cover impressive rather than enticing. It is most exceedingly dull for the most action-packed issue of the series. And Vera Wilde also said she didn't care much for the cover of Batman number 406. So your mileage may vary. <laughs> uh, Martin continues, Miller and Mazzuccelli were on fire here. I wonder what they might have done had they stayed on the book, telling stories in the present day. Oh, if only. <laughs> Especially with what's coming next. Uh, I really need to, I need to keep that tone down and people are going to like, I'm not going to listen to this show anymore when they get to that stuff. But just listen to me have a, you know, an aneurysm while, while we're doing it. That, that's just, that'll be what you listen for. So yep. I'm just kidding. I'll, I'm going to be objective about it. I swear. I, I actually enjoyed the Max Allen Collins stories a lot more than I thought it would. The first ones he did. So I'm willing to look at it. I'm willing to come to this. With a totally new perspective, it's been years since I read them, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to be objective about it. So, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Martin continues. The only thing I hated was Gordon proving to have feet of clay and bonking Essen. You know, I do. Do we think that that he bonked Essen, or do we? I mean, we don't. What do you think? Uh, I I sort of want to save this for when we cover the next issue. Um, okay. Ultimately, whether or not they consummate it and actually sleep with each other we'll, we'll talk about next issue but i don't think it matters whether he sleeps with her or whether they just kiss whatever it is emotionally he is cheating on his wife um, yes, he, yes. See, he he has fallen for another woman whether they go all the way or not i i think that's incidental right yeah it just it makes it worse but it's already bad enough yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Martin continues, Chris, you're wrong. The Detroit League has fans, me among them. Those final issues in particular written by JMD Matisse were really powerful, poignant in parts. I'm a huge fan of the satellite JLA, but that doesn't mean this series was without merit. What DC should have done is spin them off of the JLA title after three months into their own JLD book, returning the mainstays to the original title. Mind, then you'd likely never have gotten the post-Legends League. Well, you know, I, I'll be honest. 
I did buy the Detroit era Justice League quite a bit. I mean, I basically dropped out after Aquaman left because I was like, you hypocrite. And I quit <laughs> buying it. <laughs> as soon as Mara shows up, you're gone. Of course, I didn't know he had a miniseries that they, they wanted to get him into. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, the character looked like a real douche. I mean, for doing that. I mean, you know, he really did. You know, and I came back when Batman rejoined, when they had issue 250 and like all the big characters came back for that one issue. Um, but I, I stuck around and, and, you know, it, everybody likes to pick on the Detroit league. I think it's not a bad team of characters at all. And I mean, obviously even the characters that people used to snicker and laugh about, they've been proven that under, in other circumstances and under other hands, they, you know, they're, they're good, compelling characters. So I think it's just, you know, it's just fun to poke fun at them, but yeah, they could have been. I think they would have they probably would have succeeded if they hadn't called them the Justice League. That they, they just they shouldn't have been the Justice League, you know. That that's me. That's a good point. Uh Derek Crabb said, I don't know that you guys really want to know this, but D Man wanted me to tell you guys that he first shows up pre that costume as a buddy of Ben Grimm when he was in the Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation, number twenty eight. And then Derek included a picture of a demon, a live action. Like, is this a cosplay or something? Like, I don't know what picture, what the, the picture I'm looking at. Was that- That's from his uh, his his video, his YouTube series, The History of Comics on Film. Oh, okay, uh, okay. D Man pops in at least a, one or two of the videos, and and is at the end. I think it's a Captain America video. I've watched all of those, and they're running together in my head. Uh, those are a lot of fun. If if you've never watched them, go out and uh, find those on YouTube. Uh, he does a great job covering all the different uh, – any kind of movie or TV show or movie serial cartoon that was ever about any comic series, whether it's superheroes or Archie or Josie and the Pussycats, he's done a, a video on it. Okay. And he's up to the second Captain America TV movie at this point. And, yeah, D-Man shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I've heard you and I've heard other people talk about it. I've never watched the series, so I, I will have to check that out. That sounds cool. You will fall down that rabbit hole, and then <laughs> when you're done, you'll be like, oh my god, I need to shave and take a shower. It's been two days. You know? <laughs> <laughs> good, good, I need something else like that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Coletta wrote in to say, I haven't heard the whole episode yet, but have you guys mentioned that Bruce Wayne was supposedly modeled after a young Gregory Peck? Alex Ross later continued using Peck as Bruce in Kingdom Come. Yeah, we did mention uh, Gregory Peck was the model uh, for Bruce Wayne, I think, in like the first or second episode. Uh, But I had forgotten that that Gregory Peck was also who Alex Ross used in Kingdom Come because he kind of slowly got away from using Peck as much. He went with the – I can't think of the name of the guy. It's a friend of his that's his model Batman. And he kind of went more – straight to him i think you can even kind of see the difference because if you read if you get kingdom come in uh, the trade or collected it has the epilogue where they go into the uh, planet krypton restaurant and that wasn't originally in the four issues yeah 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 and 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 i think you'll kind of if you look at his bruce wayne there his bruce wayne in the series there's a little bit of a difference there he's he's kind of slowly moving straight toward his own quote-unquote actor as as batman but yeah his when Bruce first shows up in Kingdom Come, it's definitely he's definitely very Gregory Peckish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I always thought it. Yeah, and our last comment for this episode is from Lewis, who said, "I'll stand by the cover, not to rag much on modern armored Batman, but I find it more awesome that this more vulnerable man in a cape and cowl is going up against obscenely geared up SWAT team." I agree with that. Mm-hmm, uh, me too. 
With issues concerning police conduct in recent years, the corrupt and tyrannical police force depicted here make them feel as familiar a foe as any supervillain team. That's true. I mean, this this type of story does feel more relevant now than ever. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Great use of the cat to show Batman's nobility, the police's inhumanity, and Selina's destiny. I didn't see shirtless Clark Kent leave money behind when he jacked those clothes in Man of Steel. <laughs> <laughs> and he spelled he spelled steel S T E A L. Very good nice. point. Now uh, Christopher Reeve played for the damages in the bar in I mean the diner in Superman too. You know when he came back in to care of the bully. I'm yeah. just going to say he left money. So this should cover any damages. You know. So. <laughs> good point. Good point. Uh, finally, Lewis says, while Darwin Cook, who by now has passed away more than one year ago today, and we, we miss him, uh, while Darwin Cook did justice designing her modern look, year one is my favorite Catwoman costume. Hair tucked in and more form-fitting than the leather suit, Tim Sale brought back my fondness with his long Halloween purple variant. And Lewis provided links with, where you can actually see different versions of it, uh, including the, the Tim Sale one from Long Halloween. I have always had a soft spot for her purple costume uh, that that came out during her cat the the her own series in the nineties, especially when Jim Ballant was drawing it. Uh, <laughs> it shouldn't be my favorite costume, and so much of it is just the the titillation factor. But I think it, not even Jim Ballant, but I think like I maybe the first time I saw that costume, it was on like a a Batman Masterworks or Masterpiece card set. Um, mm. and just like it, the way it was done, like it was almost like sheer. And I was like, well, is that purple or is that skin tone? Like, what am I looking at here? And, and oh, it just, it looked so sexy. So I've always had a, a, a favorite spot for that purple costume with the black long boots and, and sleeves and, and the black hair coming out the back. So I, is that my favorite? I don't know. I mean, you also reminded me of how good the animated series one looked too. So I don't know. Yeah, I like that. I did like the purple. I mean, all all kidding aside about Jim Balance, the you know way he drew breasts. Uh, <laughs> you know, I did I did like that that costume because it was a nice update. It was a nice combo of taking Mazzuchelli's year one costume and the purple dress yeah. look and combining them. You know, yeah. and, it, and it really worked. It really, I thought it was a really strong design. I love I love the Darwin Cook Catwoman outfit. I think that makes more sense. And, uh, you know, to especially as they portray her as more protagonist in her own book. Right. And, you know, she's having these adventures. She almost looks like she's on a Mission Impossible style, you know, heist or, you know, it, it looks like she's in a heist movie, but it's got just a little bit of the cat, you know, look to it. I mean, it's, you know, if you take her cowl off and her goggles, she looks like she's just, you know, she could be a movie X-Men, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> or Black Widow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or Black Widow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, that was all the feedback that we got for this episode. Uh, um, we might have some more coming in late that we'll have to save for the next episode. But, uh, yeah, that's what we got. So, Ryan, what have we got coming up next time on Batman Nightcast? Well, the next episode, we will wrap up Batman Year One with our coverage of Batman issue 407, the last chapter by the creative team of Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli. And spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read the series, but... I'm pretty sure Batman dies in that story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. okay. Ad- 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 admit it. Admit it. If we could just roll with that and you wouldn't have to cover Batman 408, I think you would consider that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would. Yes, actually, I would. I would. No, I'm actually really looking forward to doing that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a challenge. It's going to be, you know... It, it, 
I want to put, it'll, it'll give me my chance to put into words. I actually wrote a back issue article that touched on that, uh, the different Jason Todd's years ago. So I've kind of got some of those demons out with that, but they're still there. So to give me a chance to, to kind of vent that frustration and also to, again, try to look at it from an objective level. So I am in a very strange way looking forward to it. Kind of like if you look forward to a root canal or something. I don't know. but <laughs> Well, you might feel better in the future. That's okay. So, yeah, it's, you're going to experience a lot of pain, but hopefully it'll be better in the future. So, okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right, we'll see. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks. On its Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. <laughs>